The scripture lesson for today's sermon comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 37 through 38, and this will be from the Common English Bible. Don't judge, and you won't be judged. Don't condemn, and you won't be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good portion, packed down, firmly shaken, and overflowing will fall into your lap. The portion you give will determine the portion you receive in return. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpreting these words. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace?, author Philip Yancey tells of a conversation he once had with two scientists who had just emerged from the biosphere near Tucson, Arizona back in the 1990s. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with what that is, it was an isolation experiment which was conducted uh, in which a team of four men and four women lived inside a glass-enclosed structure entirely shut off from the outer world. The general idea was to see if humankind might one day be able to exist on another planet by recreating a portion of the Earth. So consequently, the scientists were expected to be self-reliant, producing everything they would need for survival, including their own oxygen. Within the biosphere, they had access to fields and forests, jungles and deserts. There was even an ocean on a much smaller scale, of course. I guess you could think of it as a second attempt at the Garden of Eden. And actually, that may not be such a bad analogy because they ended up encountering some of the same difficulties that the characters in the Adam and Eve stories in the scriptures ran into the first time around. What these scientists admitted to Yancey is that within a matter of months, the team had splintered into two factions. A minor misunderstanding led to mistrust, which quickly spiraled into accusations of misconduct, and before long, the two groups were not even speaking. Now, eventually, the situation became so tense that the experiment had to be called off. And in the final report, it was concluded that unless human beings learn how to forgive each other, it's not likely that we'll survive on this planet much less any other. Now, obviously, the demand for forgiveness is exceedingly high. And unfortunately, there is no one else to blame for the short supply of forgiveness in this world besides ourselves. Luke places this teaching of Jesus about forgiveness within the context of Luke's Sermon on the Plain. Similar to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, This is probably a compilation of some of the most central and key elements of Jesus' teachings. He may not have given this as one complete sermon per se, but think of it as the cliff notes on Jesus' teachings according to Luke's gospel. If we're going to truly be the church, as the title of this series of nine messages we are in the midst of suggests, we will have to learn to forgive and to do it often. Forgive and you will be forgiven. The portion you give will determine the portion you receive in return. 
This is good news for some of us, and this is bad news for some of us. The measure with which we offer forgiveness to others is the exact measure we receive in return. Jesus is making a universal observation on human nature here. Doesn't this sound familiar to that part of what we come to call the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Now, both in this epic prayer and in the Sermon on the Plain here in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is saying that forgiveness is conditional, that it is also proportional, and that forgiveness is also entirely relational. The good news is that we control the amount of forgiveness we can receive by how we choose to forgive others. The bad news is that we control the amount of forgiveness we can receive by how we choose to forgive others. Well, with that being the case, you'd think we'd be doing a better job on the supply side of the equation by extending forgiveness to one another. After all, if practice makes perfect, this is certainly an area where we're given plenty of opportunities to practice. But you know as well as I do that it's just not that simple. Somehow, turning the other cheek has come to mean, in our minds, looking the other way, which is liable to give the impression that we're ignoring the offense or worse yet, condoning the offense. And despite hundreds of thousands of sermons on this subject down through the centuries, most of us still find forgiveness to be awkward, painful, and in a word, difficult. Indeed, at times, it doesn't feel natural. And maybe that's because it isn't natural for us. Like it or not, we live in a world that is very ungracious by nature. It's dog-eat-dog out there, not dog-forgive-dog. We human beings seem so insistent on forever pointing out one another's shortcomings. Maybe we're just wired that way, or maybe the world is wired that way. Have you ever noticed when exam papers are handed back in school? It's never the correct answers that are highlighted, only the mistakes that are marked, usually in giant red ink. And when advertisers make their sales pitch on television, invariably the message is that something is lacking in our lives. And when politicians make their campaign claims, usually they do so by pointing out the places their opponents are lacking or are just plain wrong. We're never popular enough, we're never powerful enough or prosperous enough to satisfy even our own desires, it seems. And maybe that's why we're so quick to find fault with one another, because that's precisely what we're taught to focus on. We're not taught to focus on the good or to find it. We're taught to find fault. We're taught to lay blame. And we often point fingers rather than extend a helping hand. Now, perhaps another reason we struggle with offering forgiveness is that unilateral forgiveness often strikes us as being blatantly unfair. No one wants to be taken advantage of, and excusing a grievous wrong simply because the other person happens to stammer out the words, I'm sorry, it just tends to make us feel weak and capitulant and like someone who's always being pushed around. 
As a result, whenever we've been injured, we can usually come up with a host of what we think are perfectly legitimate reasons for standing our ground. They need to learn a lesson, we'll say. Letting them off the hook now will only encourage more irresponsible behavior in the future. After all, I'm the one who was hurt here, and it's not up to me to make the first move. Well, let's face it. Unconditional forgiveness is not just a difficult act to embrace. It's a hard concept even to swallow. Which is why we may flinch a bit when we hear a scripture passage like this one. Notice that Jesus does not mention that the other person has to be remorseful or deeply repentant. He simply says, forgive and you'll be forgiven. The portion you give will determine the portion you receive in return. Now that's easier said than done, to be sure. But then again, Jesus never claims that living out the gospel will be easy, nor does he promise that it will be completely satisfying all of the time. He knows that the nagging memory of the offense will still remain, and that when the wounds run deep, healing will often come slowly and ever so incompletely. The reason he keeps preaching forgiveness is not because it's easy, but because forgiveness is essential for our survival as human beings. And I'd like to offer a few observations as to why I believe this is the case. The first is theological. The other two, more practical. So when it comes to forgiveness, most of us believe that a mere apology without any further consequences just doesn't cut it. Uh, frankly, that's part of what continues to baffle us about grace. It goes against the intuitive sense we all possess, for example, that in the face of a heinous crime, the guilty party cannot be allowed to walk away unpunished. We may debate the appropriate level of that punishment and the means by which the punishment is applied, but at the end of the day, we all agree that one way or another, a price must be paid. Now this is perhaps the greatest single disconnect between the teachings and practices of Jesus on one hand and the practices and understandings of Jesus' followers today on the other hand. I'm talking about this concept, this practice of unconditional forgiveness and grace. I'm talking about the ability that only few human beings seem to have that even when they have been wounded ever so deeply, even when by all standards they have every right to be angry or vengeful or vindictive, that somehow they find the internal fortitude to let someone who has done serious damage off the proverbial hook. Now, anytime I preach about forgiveness in modern, uh, in recent years rather, I cannot help but recall the tragedy in 2007 among the Amish communities near Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. It was the tiny community here in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, where a man stormed into a one-room schoolhouse and shot 10 girls at point-blank range, killing five, and then turning the gun on himself and killing himself. Now, that old school has since been demolished and the new school was closed on the one-year anniversary and families gathered privately to consecrate that new school. Now, since the tragedy, 
People around the world have been inspired for years since 2007 by the way the Amish have expressed forgiveness toward that killer and his family who survived him. But while their acts of forgiveness were inspiring, they also caused a misperception that the Amish had quickly gotten over this tragic shooting. Many Amish communities actually have a predetermined plan for practicing forgiveness. It is for them a spiritual discipline as much as it is an act. And this is why, following the tragic shooting, members of these Amish communities near this part of Pennsylvania attended the funeral service of the shooter, offering hugs and condolences to the shooter's widow. Actually, some widows who knew what it was like to lose a spouse were the very ones whose idea it was to attend the shooter's funeral from the Amish communities. And sometime later, other members of the Amish community raised funds and delivered assistance in the form of food and other gifts to the shooter's widow and children in order to show their love and support. And then later on, even months after this, in an effort that stretched even their own religious practices, since Amish people tend to shy away from professional counseling, they raised funds so that the shooter's widow could seek professional counseling after this tragedy. And when some members of these Amish communities were asked about their graciousness towards the shooter and his family, they uh, kind of collectively said something like this. You know, there was a misperception that somehow we got over this, this tragic shooting quickly. But the truth is, we will always probably feel a deep sense of sadness and loss. Well, what we try to do is every time we feel that way, we send someone to go check on the shooter's family. We show them concern and love, and we do so as much for ourselves as we do for them so that forgiveness will truly take root in our hearts as we do these tangible acts of service and kindness for them. Wow. I think what Jesus is saying about forgiveness in this teaching from Luke's Gospel is that if we can't open our hearts to those around us, then our hearts are likely to remain closed towards others as well as those involved with our pain. In other words, the same stubborn pride that keeps us from extending forgiveness may also keep us from experiencing forgiveness and grace. We have to be willing to reach out, outside ourselves, in order to experience healing and grace within ourselves. Now, my second observation concerning forgiveness is that given the alternatives, it's the one thing that truly works. I mean, the other options, of course, are resentment and revenge, neither of which offer an escape from the pain that we're dealing with in the first place. Now, in fact, our word resentment literally means to feel again, kind of like picking at a scab. The wound never heals because when we pick at it, it we would never really allow it to. And so we keep reliving the event that caused our pain in our minds, traveling back to the source of the suffering and being hurt by it all over again. However, since none of us can change the past, why do we want to remain imprisoned there so badly by the way that we behave?
Revenge is likewise a trap. Only instead of imprisoning us in the past, revenge locks us into a future of forever trying to even the score. And therein lies the primary flaw with the law of revenge. It never gets what it's after. Fairness and parity are never achieved. On the contrary, it ties the injured and injurer together in a never-ending cycle, which usually spins out of the control of both and takes on a life of its own. The taste of revenge may seem sweet, but when dinner is served, we're the ones who end up being eaten alive. That's why it's called an all-consuming passion. Forgiveness, then, is a way to be released from the self-inflicted punishment of resentment and the self-destructive path of revenge. Forgiveness is not an easy way out. We don't automatically forget the wrong that was done to us, but at least we're now free to move forward because it's no longer setting the agenda for our daily lives. Which brings me to my final observation. Often, the person who is most healed by forgiveness is the one actually doing the the forgiving. Presbyterian minister and author Frederick Buechner put it like this, When someone you've wronged forgives you, you're spared the dull and self-diminishing throb of a guilty conscience. When you forgive somebody who has wronged you, you're spared the dismal corrosion of bitterness and wounded pride. For both parties, forgiveness means the freedom again to be at peace inside their own skin and to be glad in each other's presence. Now I want to close today with a story that the Reverend Dr. Robert S. Crilly, pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Grapevine, Texas, shared several years ago. This story has always stuck with me. Dr. Crilly said, a fifth grade boy named Jacob was killed just a few blocks from our church. He was riding his bike and he lost his balance and fell right in front of a passing car. There were no charges filed because the accident was deemed unavoidable. However, the tragedy was compounded by the fact that the driver of the car was a high school student. Now, since Jacob's family had no church of their own, I went to the house the next day and I offered the use of our sanctuary for a memorial service for Jacob. And needless to say, it was a very emotional meeting. We wept together over what had happened and wondered together about what might have been and now never would be. Their desire was for the service to be a celebration of Jacob's life. He was such a happy child, his mother explained, that I cannot imagine having one of those dreary, somber funerals. It just wouldn't be right. His father asked if he could have a moment to speak during the service. My initial impression was that he simply wanted to share some personal thoughts and to thank the community for the outpouring of support that the family had been receiving. However, when he came forward, he brought with him a small potted plant. He talked of the pain that he had been dealing with 
and the wide range of emotions he continued to experience. They say that time heals all wounds, he observed, but I just can't wait that long. I need to begin the healing process right now. And there is a young man here this morning who is hurting every bit as much as we are. And then Jacob's father walked out into the sanctuary, carrying the plant, and presented it to the driver of the car which had killed his son. And the two embraced, and between tears, briefly spoke. I have no idea, Dr. Creeley said, what was said. But as far as I'm concerned, the sermon that day had already been preached. It was an act of such courage and compassion that a lot of us did not want to leave the church even after the service was over. It was as if we had witnessed something very precious, something we all yearn for, but that the world doesn't supply very often. Forgiveness. It's not easy, of course. Nor do we suddenly stop hurting once we forgive. However, it is the surest way to survive the pain, my friends, and ultimately to be set free from it. Forgive, and you will be forgiven, Jesus said. The portion you give will determine the portion you receive in return. So, friends, may we recommit ourselves to the incredibly powerful discipline of forgiving often. And as we increasingly open our hearts to forgive others, may we be surprised once again that in increasing measure, forgiveness is offered to us as well. This is the universal principle of forgiveness, and this is the living word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen.